This is the Heartland Daily Podcast. Welcome, everyone, to the Heartland Daily Podcast. This is Anne Marie Schieber of Healthcare News. Why do drug prices have to be so high? I mean, that's kind of a myth because we have an abundance of generic drugs that are very affordable and available. But then again, we have drugs that are hugely expensive. Typically, those are the biologic drugs that can cost maybe eight, nine, ten thousand dollars a month, and perhaps very difficult for the average person to afford out of pocket. Today, I want to focus on those high-priced drugs and what we can do about them besides having the government pay for them, which can cause its own set of headaches. Um, I'm pleased to have as my guest today Greg Gervin, who is a scholar at FreeUp, and he researches healthcare policy and drug pricing, and he's working on a fascinating concept uh, that we're going to talk about, and we're going to also talk a little bit, a little bit uh, about this thing called biosimilars, which is the generic version of those pricey biologics. Welcome back, Greg. Hey, thanks, Emery. Thanks for having me. You know, first, I want to talk to you about what you're working on now. Um, apparently, you are exploring ways that challenge this notion that drug prices need to be high to get all this great cutting edge innovation. You're saying that's not necessarily true. Yeah. So the pharmaceutical industry has argued for some time that by charging higher prices, the resulting windfall of uh profits and funds from that will fund their research and development and thus lead to new cures. Uh, But what our research shows is that this assertion is false, especially among the largest pharmaceutical companies. So as Ovik Roy and I detailed in a recent op-ed in the Washington Post, we analyzed the pricing behavior of 17 large publicly traded pharmaceutical companies. These are companies that you've heard of like Pfizer and AbbVie, Johnson and Johnson, uh, and so forth. And these companies, which represent 60% of the global pharmaceutical revenue each year, and also spend 56% of the total global R and D. The, when you look at these companies, and you look at their pricing behavior, especially on drugs that they've had on the market for a long time, you find that not only do they raise prices on these drugs consistently uh, each year, but we found that if we pick just one drug from these 17 companies that exhibits this kind of pricing behavior where the price just keeps increasing year in and year out, Mm -hmm. we find that if we say uh, we have a counterfactual experiment and say, what if over the past 10 years, we kept prices at a constant level for just that one drug in each of those 17 companies' portfolios? What would happen? What would be the savings that we would have as Americans? And it turns out that uh, of the 17 drugs that we chose, Americans would have spent or would have saved uh, $139 less they would have spent $139 billion less on prescription drugs. Wow. Uh, what, and, and what that would have resulted in, because of the percentage of their revenues that drug companies spend on R&D, we found that that loss of revenue would have resulted in $25 billion less spent on R&D. 
Mm-hmm. And that sounds pretty impactful to future drug sure. development. But what our study concluded actually found the opposite, which is that that lost R&D spending would have resulted in only five less drugs developed out of the 430 new drugs that had been approved by the FDA over the, the last 10 years. So in other words, we would have saved, we would have uh, reduced drug spending over that time period by 5% would have only had a loss of 1% of those new drugs developed. And all of this is to say that these larger companies, they're about one-fifth as efficient in developing cures from their R&D as the overall industry. Hmm. So what that means is they typically spend $5 billion per new drug developed, and that includes drug failures. That includes you know trial failures where the drug doesn't pan out. Compare that to the industry as a whole, which is around one billion. It it, it shows that amongst these the the large incumbent pharmaceutical companies, the mm-hmm. ones that are really charging these high prices uh, on on drugs that a lot of people use, it shows that these these companies are are lumbering companies that often spend their their R&D funds inefficiently. Compare that to the startups in the industry. That is Mm. where the innovation is actually occurring, is among companies that don't have a dime to their name. These are companies that rely on venture capital to conduct R&D before that first drug that they developed is approved by the FDA and enters the market where they can start making a profit. And so the large companies are really good at navigating the regulatory system to keep mm-hmm. competitors out of the market and engage in monopolistic pricing yeah. practices, but they're not particularly good at developing the new cures of tomorrow. That's really interesting because we hear that time and time again that the reason drug prices have to be what they are is so we can get the best drugs. And the U.S. has great drugs. I mean, we're a leader, certainly. Um, but it's really interesting to see how these ma- more mature companies are behaving. And, w- and we've heard about these marketing practices. So um, there is some truth to them. I want to bring up um, this issue of biologic drugs because many times these are what we're talking about when we talk about these drugs that cost thousands of dollars mm-hmm. each month. Now, many people think the solution is to have the government pay for them. Um, but there's been some criticism of this, you know, even, th- even through Medicare, you know, we had the drug recently for Alzheimer's. Um, I mean, this sometimes right. becomes a runaway train. And, and, and can you explain first what is a biologic drug and why these drugs need to be so pricey out of the gate? Sure. So uh, for your listening audience, biologic drugs are complex molecules that are derived from a biological source, such as living cells or organisms. This contrasts to what most people think of of drugs as being in a tablet or a capsule form. These are collectively what we would call small molecule drugs. So that's basically the two types of, of drugs or molecules that are developed by the industry. Uh, and so these biologic drugs, they're proteins uh, that are uh, synthesized, produced with advanced technology, and they are much larger and much more complex than the small molecule drugs. And so uh, because of that complexity and the difficulty in manufacturing biologics, uh, 
they 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 tend to be more expensive and more difficult to produce. But that's actually not the primary reason why biologics are so expensive. And this is a really critical point for for people to understand is it is actually the legal and regulatory system set mm. by Congress that drives the high prices of biologics. That's really so interesting. Yeah. Go ahead. Yes. Yeah. So if you really if you consider the U.S. drug market as a whole, and as you mentioned uh, at at the top of the podcast, you know most prescriptions that are filled are low cost generics. The U.S. is actually really good at substituting generic drugs for the brand name to lower costs. In fact, 90% of prescriptions dispensed in the U.S. are generics. And these generics, this is the small molecule part of the drug market. And so when you look at the overall spending that's occurring with small molecules, it has declined uh, each year over the last several years. But if you look at our overall spending on biologics, that has increased. In fact, Hmm. the increase in spending on biologics is driving entirely the increase in prescription drug spending in the U.S. each year. And so, uh, but but it's really the regulatory system uh, that the industry lobbied really hard for that is is driving those higher prices. So, I do want to get into this issue because we have a solution to this possibly called biosimilars. And this is sort of the the generic equivalent to this class of drugs. So are these exact replicas like generics are for small molecule drugs? Do they do the same thing? Tell us a little bit about this market. Sure. So uh, as as you noted, you know, biosimilars, they're sort of the generic version of biologics. Uh, the industry is quick to point out, though, that it's they they like to use this term biosimilars and not the term generics because uh, a biosimilar, in terms of every single atom in that molecule, is not going to be an exact copy of the reference product of the, mm-hmm. the original biologic. Uh, it's just again coming back to the complexity in synthesizing these proteins. It's just simply too difficult to make an exact copy uh, without using the exact processes and equipment and so forth that the uh, the brand name manufacturer is using. Uh, but the thing that people need to understand, though, is that biosimilars are so substantially similar to the reference product that they function in the same way. And in fact, if you look at the regulatory approval process with the FDA, the FDA requires biosimilars to have the same level of efficacy and safety as the reference product biologic. Uh, And so uh, these biosimilars are essentially the generic form. They may not be exact on in every single atom in the molecule, mm-hmm. but they functionally uh, act the same as the the original biologic. And you know we can get into this a little bit later on too, with being able to interchange between a biologic and a biosimilar at the pharmacy level. Uh, this is a, a really critical thing that uh, that people can gain greater access to biosimilars. 
if we understand that they really do function the same way as a biologic does, as opposed to the, the, the argument from the industry in saying that, well, these things aren't exactly the same. Part of the reason they're arguing that is so that people continue to take the brand name and thus more right. expensive biologic yeah. product. So that gets me to my next question. Is this biosimilar market as robust as the generic market is for small molecule drugs? Yeah, and in fact, this is a, a, a point where there is a huge difference and where we in the United States have a lot to learn from those in Europe. And so if you compare the two markets, uh, in Europe, they have a really robust biosimilar market. They've brought more biosimilars to the market than the U.S. has at this point. We really are light years behind Europe in this regard. And so uh, if you look at, you know, sort of the differences between the two markets and why that's the case, there are a few reasons. One is that in Europe, once uh, the brand name Biologic has been on the market for eight years, then competitor companies can start submitting applications uh, to the EMA, which is the FDA counterpart uh, mm -hmm. in Europe. They can begin submitting applications to the EMA uh, to, uh, to get a biosimilar approved. Whereas in the United States, that uh, exclusivity for the Biologic lasts at least 12 years. Mm -hmm. So maybe I should back up here a little bit. Again, this difference between small molecules and biologics. For small molecules, the generic market and how robust that is in the United States, we have uh, one piece of legislation really to thank for that, and that's the Hatch-Waxman Act, as it's colloquially named or, mm -hmm. or known. Uh, this this act, uh, passed in 1984, uh, really established the paradigm by which generics can enter the market and be approved by the FDA. So the FDA only requires those who are making a generic to a small molecule to demonstrate that the molecule essentially is substantially similar to, to the reference product and is metabolized and taken up by the human body in the same way and at the same rate. They don't have to undergo lengthy and costly clinical trials in order to demonstrate the generic's efficacy and safety because the assumption is, well, this is the same exact molecule, same active ingredient, and the body is metabolizing it in the same way. Well, then we already assume that the molecule is going to work at the same level of efficacy and, and, and have the same safety profile. And so the other thing that Hatch-Waxman set up was that the FDA grants the brand name company a five-year exclusivity on that drug. And so as soon as five years after that, uh, a company can, can uh, submit an application to the FDA to uh, market a generic. When you look at biologics, on the other hand, biologics are, are governed by the Biologics Price Competition and Innovation Act, the BPCI, which mm -hmm. was part of the Affordable Care Act 
It's a provision within the Affordable Care Act passed in 2010. And this set the paradigm for biologics and for the approval of biosimilars. And in there, the exclusivity is set at 12 years for biologics, which was a huge win for the pharmaceutical industry. Sure. And so having that longer time frame where they're allowed to, where they have exclusivity, where they're, they have monopoly power over that drug, on top of the fact that the BPCI requires these lengthy clinical trials for a biosimilar, as I mentioned earlier, those things combine to create a situation where it's really difficult for a competitor to develop a biosimilar and thus, we just don't have the same robust biosimilar market that Europe has. There are other things that are, are preventing biosimilars from entering the market, too. There's a lot of practices that the pharmaceutical companies engage in. One that I'll mention in particular is building a patent thicket around that drug product. Mm -hmm. So by way of example... Probably the best example I could ever give is AbbVie's Humira. This is the uh, immunology drug developed by AbbVie for rheumatoid arthritis and psoriatic arthritis and psoriasis, Crohn's disease, all these uh, anti, it's an anti-inflammatory drug. And this, the company really created or applied for all of these patents, not just around the drug's composition, but around the delivery device, um, they um, around the manufacturing process, how they develop the drug, and they put so many of these patents up that it was virtually guaranteed that when a biosimilar company would come along and try to make a copy of that, mm -hmm. they would infringe upon some kind of patent that AbbVie had on the drug. And so yeah. this patent thing, it created a web around the drug that protected it from any kind of competition. And so that 12 year exclusivity that I mentioned before, well, right. Humira has been on the market for 20 years in the US without any competition. That's in amazing. Europe, yeah. It's amazing. Uh, I I will say that the attorneys that Abby employs deserves every penny that they <laughs> because they've done an excellent job in 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 protecting that drug from any kind of competition, they've made that company billions of dollars as a result. If you compare it to Europe, they've had numerous biosimilars, more than half a dozen biosimilars that are available in Europe since 2018. That's and amazing. so it's been nearly five years now, uh, four, over four years, where that competition has existed in Europe. And it just doesn't exist here because of... Uh, those tactics plus the regulatory regime that it was put, put into place by the BPCI. Now, I want to ask you, because they have such a leg up on this, um, <clears throat> these biosimilars, I'm thinking of a case where a friend of mine uses one of these brand name biologic drugs and uh, pays 20 or 30 bucks for it. I don't know. It's, under, it's administered under Medicare Part B because it's done in the doctor's office. Mm -hmm. And this person would never, ever, ever switch over to the brand name or to a biosimilar if it were available because, first of all, they are convinced that, you know, this brand name drug is the only drug they can have. And it's, you know, it's a drug for the eyes. So you don't want to screw around with your eyesight. 
Um, so I'm wondering if, you know, we American consumers will ever accept this idea of biosimilars because, you know, the biologic, the brand name drug makers um, have really had a leg up and really have done a great job at convincing Americans that the brand name drug is somehow better than an equivalent. So can you comment on that? Yeah, sure. So uh, uh, I, I think the, the answer to that question is, well, let's look at the small molecule market. So in 1984, when Hatch-Waxman went into effect, at that time, I believe the U.S. 13% of drugs that were dispensed were, were generic drugs. Fast forward to today, and 90% of them are generics that are dispensed. So I think the answer is yes. I think Americans can embrace this idea of using biosimilars. But as I mentioned before, we have to have the right system in place and to, and yes, to educate uh, patients on the value of biosimilars. But really the reason why we use generics the small molecule market so heavily today is because we have the right legal and regulatory system in place to allow for that. Yeah. So in addition to the things that I mentioned in terms of having the same exclusivity period as small molecules, that would certainly uh, help increase biosimilar uptake. One of the other things that uh, is often forgotten is that there's this idea of interchangeability and automatic substitution at the right. pharmacy level. Yeah. So what this really refers to is, you know, when, when a prescription is written by your doctor and let's say they write a prescription for Lipitor, you know, the cholesterol lowering drug, mm-hmm. when that prescription is then submitted to the pharmacy, because there are generic versions of Lipitor available the generic atorvastatin would be uh, prescribed instead of the brand name Lipitor. And this is done automatically by the pharmacist. They don't have to go back to the doctor and ask, hey, did you mean the brand name or do you mean the generic? It's done automatically. And that is a critical piece of this that is absolutely needed in order to increase uptake and adherence to using generics. Right now, that doesn't exist really in the United States in in terms of biosimilars. Um, There is starting to be some movement toward that Mm -hmm. in terms of uh, one of the biosimilars for um, Lantus, which is the longer acting insulin uh, product. Um, we're starting to see that where the FDA is, is labeling certain biosimilars as interchangeable. But the problem is there's a web of state laws that differ in terms of how they handle this kind of situation with biosimilars. And really what we need is laws across the country to be uniform in that, yes, we are going to make biosimilars interchangeable as well. And so... Um, having those things in place, I, I know that Americans will embrace biosimilars just like they embrace generics uh, for uh, small molecule drugs because the fact is they work. Yeah, uh, they've yeah. Been, they, if you look at the, the clinical 
testing on, on biosimilars. They work just like the biologic, but you know, the pharmaceutical companies are going to do everything they possibly can to develop that brand loyalty to the brand name. And on top of that, in the medical profession, it also is not considered good medical practice to switch somebody off of a drug if it's working effectively. So there are certain things like that um, that are considered good practice that may uh, provide a little bit of a, a roadblock to that. But if we need any evidence to see whether biosimilars can, can catch on in the U.S. with the right uh, pieces in place, it's what we see in the small molecule market as a result of hatch yeah. And then, of course, you know, there is this issue of the kind of drug coverage you have. If you're not paying out of pocket, you're not really concerned about the cost. So why not stick to the brand name? I, I want to mention this thing that this the Biosimilars Council is working on. So it's kind of a marketing thing, but they have found what they're trying to do is get higher doctors and have them speak to pharmacists uh, about these biosimilars so that they're more open-minded and just trying, well, actually what they're trying to do is talk to consumers first before they actually get into the doctor's office and are, you know, sold on the brand name drug. And I guess there's been a study out that shows that this really does work, that if consumers are educated about what a biosimilar is, that they might be more open to getting a less expensive alternative. What are your thoughts on these things? Do you think they can work? And I mean, I guess every little bit helps, huh? I, I agree with that. I think it's definitely a step in the right direction in terms of educating patients uh, about the benefits of biosimilars and that they are lower cost options. Uh, one of the things that we also need to deal with that I think is related to this is the idea of these copay cards. So um, for those who are listening who, who don't know what I'm referring to, there are these discount cards that the brand name manufacturers have uh, to lower the out-of-pocket cost for high-priced drugs. So, for example, I can have this, you know, copay card. Um, for, you know, a prescription for Humira, and it will, you know, if my insurance charges me, you know, let's say $50 per dose, you know, it'll, it'll either allow me to pay zero out of pocket or maybe a, a, a very modest copay of five or $10. And, you know, the consumer thinks, hey, this is great for me. This is wonderful. I, I, I don't have to pay anything out of pocket. But what people don't often understand is that behind the scenes, this is a great incentive for the manufacturer to raise the price of the drug because mm. if the consumer is going to pay nothing out of pocket anyway, then I might as well um, bump up the price significantly. This is actually one reason why you know, the recent debate in Washington over the drug pricing provisions that were recently passed where you know, people were arguing that we need to you know, cap the out-of-pocket cost for insulin. But the problem with that is that if we cap that cost, then it allows the manufacturer to consistently raise the price of the drug because the consumer is just going to pay the same price at the pharmacy counter anyway. But the effect of that is that it raises everybody's premiums. It raises government spending uh, in the Medicare and Medicaid sure. programs as a result. 
And so the, the, the idea of these copay cards may sound really great for the patient, but they actually have very, quite a few negative consequences downstream. And there's no reason why, or it's, it's no surprise, I should say, why the pharmaceutical companies offer these. Uh, you know, people may think, oh, this is very altruistic of them, but believe me, they are doing this for a reason <laughs> and it's because it is actually more profitable for them to do this because not only are the people using that product and it allows them to raise prices behind the curtain, but it develops that brand loyalty yeah. to the point where people stay on the product even when there's a generic or in this case, a biosimilar alternative available. That's really interesting. And, you know, people a lot of times are just floored by the price of drug plans. If they have private insurance, you know, you have to buy a separate drug plan or, you know, pay separate premiums for that. And they keep going up and up every year. Medicare, kind of, yes, right? Premiums do go up. Um, but again, if you're sheltered from the cost, you don't know what is going on behind the scenes. And of course, then we have this big mm -hmm. healthcare bill. So just all really amazing. I guess, um, you know, I, we have covered a lot of ground. I'm going to, you have an excellent paper on this and I'm going to put that, uh, in our podcast notes. It's, um, a, a paper that you and Ovik had worked on on the biosimilars and all the more, if you want to learn more about the marketing stuff and the market itself, um, why should we all be pushing for these reforms? Well, uh, Amory, that's a great question. That's really the, the ultimate question, right? Why, why does the industry need reform? Because if you, if you listen to some voices out there, they'll say, well, in this time of really high inflation, if you look at inflation for prescription drugs, well, it's only about, uh, you know, two and a half percent right now. So it, things seem really good in the pharmaceutical market. And, and, and then this whole line again about, well, if we do anything to reform the system, it's going to harm innovation. So there's, there have been over the years, several forces that have prevented any kind of reform in this market. But the thing that, people have to understand is that, you know, that two and a half percent inflation figure, mm -hmm. it's really misleading because of the way the Bureau of Labor Statistics calculates that this is supposed to be an average basket of goods for an average consumer. And there isn't an average consumer when it comes to prescription drugs. Everybody has a different uh, health profile and different drugs that they need uh, to, to sustain a healthy and, and better life. And so it's, it's really impossible to, to peg that in that sense. And it also ignores the fact that our drug prices have been really high and much higher than our uh, fellow nations uh, for some time now. And so even if we take that number at face value and say, well, it's not increasing all that much in comparison to you know, what I'm paying for gas or what I'm paying for food at, at the grocery store, it ignores the fact that these drug prices have been twice as high and even more than our peer countries for some time now. So mm. it is a huge problem. It, it, and on top of that, it's driving the uh, un unsustainable fiscal situation when it comes to the federal budget. I mean, the, the, 
what is really driving our deficits in debt? It's healthcare. Right. Uh, and so when you look at you know, what we're spending on, on prescription drugs, uh, it's unconscionable what, what we spend uh, in order to, to, in order to get access to these drugs. And so this is a problem that affects millions of Americans, uh, especially those at or below the median income level and, and wealth level. And so, and, and a lot of those people are seniors. If you look at the average amount that uh, a person in America spends on prescription drugs and, and on over-the-counter drugs combined, the average person spends about $1,600 a year. That's twice as much as, as the next country. But when you look at seniors, it's over 3000 a year. And many of those seniors are in that situation where they, they truly are low income. And so this is a huge problem for, for, for so many people. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so these reforms are, are critical. Now, we, we've had the, the drug price provisions passed as, as part of the uh, Inflation Reduction Act. And that is an important step to uh, holding the drug companies accountable. And, you know, the, the companies will say this is really going to harm innovation. This is awful. The sky is falling. But in reality, those provisions only will affect 20 drugs out of the over 4,100 drugs that Medicare covers. And so it actually the provisions are, are rather modest. Yeah. Um, but it, it's a step in the right direction. Uh, when you couple that uh, those provisions with the reforms that we've discussed on the podcast today, uh, when you uh, really align the paradigm set in Hatch-Waxman with BPCI such that the, the biologics have five years of exclusivity rather than 12, and that we make it easier for drug companies to be able to develop biosimilars to these high-priced biologics where all of the, the price and spending growth is occurring in the market. And by doing these and, and many other reforms that we've described and reforms that we describe in, in the paper that you're going to, uh, to post, when you combine all these things together, what does it do? It creates a competitive market for prescription drugs. Because so many people think that our system of healthcare is a free market system. It actually is not, especially yeah. when it comes to prescription drugs. We do not have a free market for, for prescription drugs. We have a market where especially large companies have a monopoly over uh, the drugs that they sell and set the price wherever they want whatever they can possibly charge uh, to get as, as, as much uh, revenue and profits as they can. And we can change that. We can change that by introducing these reforms and, and restoring a competitive balance to the market such that not only will we be able to develop those innovative drugs of the future, but they will be drugs that Americans can actually afford. I would argue that it's not all that innovative to develop a new drug that people can't pay for. And so we need to restore that competitive balance so that we continue to have the cures of the future while also making drugs more affordable for millions of Americans. 
Well, thank you, Greg, for coming on the podcast and really educating us on this issue. It's um, one that is very misunderstood and uh, something we really do need to think about. So I really appreciate all your information. This is just fascinating. So thanks again. (laughs) Absolutely. It's been a pleasure being with you today. Greg Gervin is a scholar at FreeOp, and again, we'll have links to his work on the podcast notes, and I would very much encourage you to take a look at those. And thank you, listeners, for tuning in. If you like this discussion, please share the link. Become a regular subscriber to the Heartland Daily Podcast. It is a great way to stay informed about protecting free markets. This is Anne-Marie Schieber. Mm-hmm.